Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Armand Moss, welcome to the podcast. How are you tonight? Uh, fine, considering what's left of me. There you go. Yes, it's good to hear. Good to hear. I uh, I wonder, Brother Moss, if you might uh, start us off. Uh, I know lots of my listeners will be very familiar with the articles and some of the intellectual thoughts and books and papers that you've shared and written uh, over the years. But just wondered for those few who may not know who you are, if you might share just a brief bio of yourself. Um, well, I, uh, born in Salt Lake many years ago, more than 86 years ago, as a matter of fact. After a brief, uh, childhood there, my father moved us to Southern California and then to Northern California. And I, uh, grew up pretty much totally in California, left on my mission from Oakland, California. Then on returning from my mission, after only a few weeks, my father received a call to preside over the mission of the church in Japan, which was then called the Far East Mission. So it was pretty extensive. <laughs> I had been planning just to start college the, that fall, but I wasn't going to turn down a chance to go to Japan with the family. So I did. Ended up staying in Japan almost five years, long enough to uh, have my status change three or four times from uh, a missionary dependent to college student to Air Force sergeant, indeed from single man to father of two. Uh, so that was a crucial period in my life. So with a, uh, a wife and two and a half children, uh, I returned to finish my military obligation in the States and then started my um my graduate work at uh, University of California, Berkeley. In Japan, I had been there long enough actually to graduate with a bachelor's degree from a Jesuit university there called Sophia University. So I was able to start graduate work when I got back from from Japan. And um, I took a long time to get my doctorate because I kept getting interrupted by things like calls to the bishopric. <laughs> But eventually, I finished my uh, my doctorate in uh, in sociology and religion. By that time, also uh, had uh, produced a number more children. To uh, point to the the time involved here, I should say by by this point in time, we're in 1967. At that point, I decided to, after teaching in the public schools and community colleges of California while I was working on my doctorate, I decided to uh, try the university circuit. So in 1967, my wife and I and our eight children all moved up to Logan, uh, where uh, I was at the uh, Utah State University for a couple of years. That uh, turned out not to be um, a terribly good fit for me. 
and so I took advantage of an offer that I got then from Washington State University in 1969, moved there and had a career there for 30 years uh, in eastern Washington. Pullman, Washington is the home of Washington State University, otherwise known as the Other Cougars. And uh, so uh, then, uh, meantime, of course, all of our children grew up there in, in Pullman and uh, graduated from high school and one by one uh, left home um, with both of my feet planted firmly in their backs, uh, pushing them out the door. And um, they uh, went back down to California uh, where um, education was cheap in those days, and they uh, started uh, um, college themselves, uh, some in Northern California, some in Southern California, because we had family who could help them in both of those places. Uh, our sons uh, prepared for their missions and departed from California on their missions, returned, and the family members all ended up staying in California uh, at that stage of life when they were still young and student age and mission age and all that. They naturally met people who were to become their uh, spouses. So when they got married in California, they also then had in-laws there and they pretty much uh, just made California their home. Gotcha. Uh, so um, anyway, that's the reason why on retirement from Pullman, Washington, my wife and I moved back to California, where we now live in Irvine, about uh, 40 miles south of Los Angeles, where we're near a number of our children, and we have wonderful weather. Gotcha. Wonderful. So uh, you said you're, you've got eight children, which, which ties into a little bit of my own little story. My, my dad is one of eight kids. My wife is one of eight children and I'm one of two. We met somewhere in the middle and me and my wife ended up having four kids, but, uh, four is, is a lot of work. I mean, how much work is eight kids? That sounds like a, a lot of going on a lot uh, within your home, quite a busy household. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to say right up front, um, this would have been totally unmanageable without the kind of wife I had to start with. Um, but uh, uh, the the other crucial factor that made our family life possible was we were very faithful about weekly family home evenings. And uh, we, uh, I, we've even still got the minutes that we kept for 20 years of family home evenings. Wow. And uh, uh, we we use those uh, family home evenings not only for uh, religious lessons and for some fun times and and refreshments and all that, but actually most of the time in our family home evenings was taken up with talking about uh, family policies and the and the uh, uh, and how we had to treat each other and resolving disputes that had grown up in the previous week and all of that. So um, to this day, our children, who some of whom are now grandparents themselves, um, uh, look back on their family home evening as the time when they really learned how to live in a uh, in a, an environment of give and take. Uh, and to this day, our children would rather be with their siblings than with anybody else. 
even though in you know in their childhood they had some some pretty severe disagreements uh, that were of course eventually resolved. Still, at this point, there's no place they'd rather be than with their their own family members. So we're very happy with uh, how all of that turned out. That's wonderful, and it's and when you say things like that, it it says a lot about the the way you and your wife raised them, and, and as you point to the some of the things you covered uh, in family home evenings and other things. I I know you said that, uh, or at least I read, and I think you said it too, that you served a mission in New England. And I know in reading your biography, some of the stuff on Wikipedia and some of the other places online where you share some of your your history, you you kind of talk about this mission in New England really being kind of the start of you. Seeing the world in a new way, is there anything you took away from your mission specifically that, that maybe would be of worth to share or some of the things that uh, that your mission taught you? Um, well, I guess uh, the, the main um, impact that the mission had on me was uh, uh, to, well, I guess there's more than one, but one major impact the mission had on me was to... Uh, um, Force me to confront the um, arguments of uh, people from other religions. Uh, my mission occurred in the late 1940s, 47 to 49. And uh, as you know, if you've read some of what I've written, it happened to be a time when uh, uh, our mission president decided to try the old-fashioned going without purse or script uh, during uh, the, the all but the, the winter months. Um, and so we, we walked in the countryside essentially homeless a lot of the time and, and found uh, that we met a lot of people that way that we wouldn't otherwise have met. And many of the people that we met from one town to the next, these were little New England towns, were ministers of other churches. And uh, um, I uh, I was uh, I always as a sort of a brash young man as I was in those days I took those uh, I took those uh, uh, ministers to be rivals and I thought it was my job to straighten them out um, I had an early encounter during about the first two months of my mission in which I uh, in in turn got really severely straightened out by a minister uh, whom we had whose door we had knocked on and i learned that there was a, a lot more to understanding the the teachings and doctrines of the church uh than just what was learned in sunday school so uh, that uh convinced me that i should never open my mouth and make any claims um that i couldn't back up uh, and so that introduced a note of caution. And it also gradually reduced the sense of rivalry that I felt with the ministers of other faiths, because uh, a great many of them turned out to be very kind and friendly people. In fact, as I've looked back over the mission journal that I kept, I can see that among the people who took us in when we were walking on uh, country highways and byways, uh, the local ministers were among the most frequent that would invite us in, feed us, and keep us overnight. Um, so um, I, uh, I had those kinds of experiences. There were also a few times, not many, I have to confess, but a few times when um, 
my faith had faltered a little, and I wasn't sure how much longer I was going to go without something to eat and a place to stay. Uh, but uh, I should say we, because I was always with a companion. But um, um, it forced me to learn that when all else fails, if not sooner, uh, you have to depend on the Lord. And when you do, um, uh, the Lord comes through, not always in the ways that you'd hoped, but does come through as necessary. Excellent. You mentioned on your mission kind of discovering that there was there was a Mormonism out there that you hadn't really learned in Sunday school, at least, you know, facets of church history, facets of church doctrine or or teachings of church leaders. Did that did that so for most members who are struggling, that kind of surprises them. It kind of catches them off guard. Did that seem like a very natural thing to you, or did that catch you off guard at the time? No, it did catch me off guard. But my reaction to it was never for some reason, um, uh, a doubt. Um, I somehow, I don't know why, um, I, uh, I never in any of, on any of those occasions or anywhere later in my life, even in my graduate work, I never really had what one could call a faith crisis. I, I learned already on my mission that, uh, I was going to have to with increased knowledge and understanding, I was going to have to change my views about something, but I could do that. Uh, and my, so my policy always was to uh, take the challenges that I got from new information, go and do some more research, and then kind of adjust my thinking, uh, arrive at a new position uh, that, that I could then um, hold uh, with integrity and with confidence. Uh, as a reasonable position. So, for example, the the minister early in my faith, or excuse me, early in my mission, the minister who chastened me and, and challenged my faith uh, did so by quizzing me at some length about the about the New Testament, find out how much I knew about that document, how we got it, what was in it, uh, what language it was written in, what difference it made, for a, a concept to be expressed in one language as opposed to a different language, all sorts of things like that about the, the scriptures that I'd never occurred to me to wonder about. So when that happened to me, I headed for the local library and started reading all I could about the, the history of the Bible and the origin of the Bible. And then I went into what the encyclopedia, this is, of course, before, <laughs> way before Google. Uh, so uh, I went into uh, uh, encyclopedia to find out, uh, you know, about early forms of baptism and all the rest of it, all any, anything I could learn about the early church. And so that made me both more knowledgeable and more careful in the future in the way I taught uh, about our own religion when I encountered people, whether clergy or otherwise. I'm afraid I've got you at a disadvantage here. Uh, has it occurred to you what danger it is for you to ask these kinds of questions to an old professor? I just can't shut up. You know, this is it's going to be a problem for us, Bill. No, this is this is perfect, Brother Moss. I I have known about you for for several years as I've dug deeper into Mormonism and uh, and I think it's just incredible to sit and to listen to some of your thoughts and some of your experiences so no I appreciate it I I know that you had a chance to kind of begin your own life as a young adult 
and and instead you willingly went with your family to Japan, where I believe your dad served as a mission president. Correct? That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, and so I wondered. I know in Japan you had a lot of neat experiences, and that probably opened up your eyes to a to a whole new world as well. But one of the things you particularly pointed out in uh, in some of your papers was that by going to Japan, you realized very quickly that that taking the Utah culture, and you don't call it that, but essentially the culture of the church, and trying to wrap it around the the people in Japan and over in in uh, some of these places in Asia, it just isn't a perfect matchup and that you had to be more flexible in the way that you applied the church. Would you mind speaking about that for a moment? Because I find that interesting and I find I find most members I'll just give this backdrop. I find most members in the church automatically assume that the culture is part of the doctrine and they get really nervous when something isn't done exactly the way they've seen it done for the last 30 years. And yet when you go to countries like Japan, you have to be able to adapt. You have to be flexible. You have to not, not get, you know, got, not become a nervous wreck over every little thing that isn't exactly the way you did it back uh, in the States. Well, uh, it's, um, it's important to understand that I lived in two different worlds in Japan. Um, uh, on the one hand, I lived in a Japanese neighborhood um, near the mission home uh, and uh, um, had a lot of interaction with, with, with the Japanese, both members and non-members. And, of course, I spent a lot of time uh, in the mission home, especially before I got married. Um, and so I interacted a lot also with Japanese members, of course, virtually all of whom then were brand new to the church. But the other world I lived in, um, I, I was forced to enter after my first uh, year and a half in Japan when uh, I was inducted into military service, uh, a, an opportunity that I had barely missed uh, during World War II because I I was a, just a year too young for the draft when World War II ended. So when I was in Japan, the Korean War came, and I was, uh, you know, 1A. So I had to uh, do something about my military obligation. So rather than go back home and go through the draft board, um, I uh, worked out an arrangement uh, in Japan um, to uh, uh, enlist in the uh, Air Force, which permitted me to stay in Japan. And that was a, a blessing. Um, so thereby, uh, I became active in the LDS servicemen's uh, uh, branch and, and district. Uh, so that was so I had two worlds, two worlds, not only in the sense that I lived in a, both a Japanese world and an American military world, but I had two religious worlds, too, in the sense that I, I lived in the Japanese religious world and in the LDS servicemen's uh, world uh, as well. So when uh, when you ask me about how I had to be flexible uh, in uh, in making my uh my um, Western American conceptions of Mormonism work, I think you're referring to something that I said in the context of my work as a branch president in the LDS servicemen's group. And uh, and there um, I, I would come across predicaments, for example, like uh, how do you do home teaching uh, when uh, uh, when the 
the, the people on on your home teaching list um, are, are 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 away dropping bombs uh, that month in the, in a foreign country, or if they live in a uh, in a uh, an American military housing unit uh, that uh, uh, you you're not permitted to enter without permission. Uh, so we had to devise a variety of ways of getting our home teaching done. Um, and, uh, of course, another thing um, <clears throat> that, that was, uh, was, was difficult was um, sometimes a, uh, a faithful LDS serviceman located in another part of Japan would uh, uh, teach a non-member buddy in the service and convert him. Well, how do we get a baptism done and properly recorded in a situation like that? So we had to set up a bunch of new rules and arrangements uh, under the approval, of course, of the mission president, uh, whereby um, uh, we could authorize a baptism by uh, somebody that we didn't really know very well and uh, make sure, though, that we got a record to the mission office of of that baptism. So there were just a lot of, of things like that that are administrative things that were difficult and might have been difficult in any mission field setting. Um, then where, where the Japanese saints themselves were concerned, um, I think the, the most uh, um, telling uh, intellectual experience I had was the realization which was not, which took a little time to come. The realization that that in um, Japanese culture and indeed in I think every East Asian culture, there simply is no conception that there could be only one true religion. They just don't think about religion that way. They think about religion as totally um, um, interpenetrated with their ethnicity, their history and everything else, uh, such that uh, when um, Mormon missionaries come along and say, well, you know, your religion is nice and we respect it and all that, but you realize it's not the true church. You know, there's only one true church, and we're here to tell you about it. Well, that's a very difficult concept for um, for Japanese to uh, to grasp, and uh, they, they had a difficult time with it. Um, it was one of the blessings that I had, in my um, association in the mission home, was getting to know um, um, Tatsui Sato, who was an early convert to the church, I think uh, partly through the uh, efforts of Elder Boyd Packer when he, Elder Packer, was there during the war. Anyway, Brother Tatsui Sato um, uh, be- became... Uh, uh, the uh, the chief uh, translator of LDS works for uh, the the mission in Japan uh, during the time I was there and for many years thereafter and uh, uh, it was a great blessing for me to get to know Brother Sato because I could go to him with all kinds of questions about what what would be a reasonable way of of rendering a, a Japanese idea into the English language or rather an, an idea from the English language into the Japanese and uh, uh, some of what uh, 
I learned from him uh, also emphasized the the difficulty uh, of of some of these translations because it's the translation involves not merely um, going from one set of words to a corresponding set of words in the other language, but uh, but it involves um, rethinking the whole concept. The Japanese, for example, in 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 the Japanese language and culture, there really is no um, concept of a of a god of the kind that the Latter-day Saints think of. Indeed, there really isn't um, a concept of some sort of overall god of the universe. Um, they have a word for god, of course, kamisama, but it's um, it, it doesn't mean quite the same thing as we mean by the word god, or certainly by the phrase god the father. So let Japanese saints have to learn how to take um, one of their own words that with which they have centuries of certain cultural associations and learn to use that word differently to refer to the the uh, uh, idea the, of deity, say, that uh, that we teach in the church. And that, that is a complex process that I could not possibly have appreciated without having spent some time among the Japanese. That's interesting. I know you said that you served as a, a branch president, and I believe you've also served as a district president. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, obviously, we, I think most of us know a branch president is very similar to a bishop, but usually over a smaller congregation. And then district president, if I'm not mistaken, is, is the same as kind of a stake president, but rather than serving as a, as a leader, uh, overseeing a bunch of wards, it's overseeing a bunch of branches. Uh, your service in those two callings, what, uh, what was that like? Well, that was kind of intimidating because at the time I was still in my 20s. Um, and when I entered the military service, which was a year or so into my, my sojourn in Japan, um, I went in at the bottom of the, of the ranks. Uh, fortunately, I was successful in advancing through the ranks uh, on a kind of accelerated basis because I'd learned some things that uh, – that the Air Force needed, and uh, they treated me accordingly. But I never got a rank uh, higher than staff sergeant while I was in the military, and that's a non-commissioned rank, um, which is to say it, it it means that you have to be prepared to defer to everybody in the commissioned ranks from the youngest lieutenant all the way up to the five-star general. Um, so here I was, uh, just a kid in my 20s and um, a, a barely uh, a sergeant. Uh, and so uh, yet uh, as a branch president over a congregation of about uh, maybe 150 people, uh, most of them um, adults, of course, and but a mix of men and women, um, I had two counselors, um, and some of my counselors uh, had non-commissioned rank like I did. But I also had counselors that were uh, um, majors and lieutenant colonels uh, during my my period, uh, both as a branch president and as a district president. I served as a branch president for probably uh, two years, and uh, then... During my final six months there, 
um, I was called as the district president, which uh, meant that I uh, had to visit regularly about six different branches that were in the central uh, part of Japan. Um, my branch was the largest branch in downtown Tokyo. Um, and uh, then the, the district consisted of, of uh, other branches, most of them small ones, even smaller than mine, um, out in, in the area, of, say, 50 miles or more outside of, of uh, Tokyo. It's necessary to understand that in those days, Japan was still uh, occupied by the American military from the end of World War II all the way till uh, about 1952 or three. So um, American military people were all over the place. There were just a lot of us. That's why the, the branches, there were so many branches, and some of them were reasonably large. But as, a, as president of a, of a uh, servicemen's branch, uh, I never had the uh, complicated uh, kinds of service that a branch president would have in a regular American community. Because, for one thing, we didn't really have a primary, and, uh, and we didn't really have a, a, a youth program to speak of because we were dealing mainly with, uh, with adults. So it was a, a simpler job in that sense. But the most intimidating thing was how to deal with um, um, extending calls, uh, with uh, uh, trying to, to teach church uh, policy and procedure and all of that to uh, men and women who were the age of my parents and to men, indeed, um, who were um, also uh, in the high ranks of you know, the commissioned uh, officer corps. So I, I learned to... Uh, I learned there to understand that the, the, one of the few instances in which in church administration, um, the priesthood calling, uh, Trump's military rank, uh, and, and the, uh, these, these older majors and colonels were all very helpful and solicitous to me because they all seemed to recognize that I was in delicate position as a mere sergeant trying to to give instruction to them uh, as their branch president. I should add one more thing, uh, lest your listeners uh, fail to understand something about my wife. Uh, I mentioned early on, of course, that uh, I had gotten married in Japan and started having a family. What I didn't explain, though, was that the woman I married was not Japanese. She was also an American who had come over there in uniform herself to serve in Japan. And uh, I met her when I was conducting a sacrament meeting in the, in the servicemen's branch one night. And she showed up, sat in the back of the hall. And uh, when I looked at her and saw that big toothy smile and the dimples on either side, uh, I was smitten right then. And uh, so I got acquainted with her fast, and we actually got married in Japan within a year after that. My father, the mission president, performed a marriage for us in a military chapel, and uh, we uh, eventually got our marriage sealed uh, after we returned to the States. Wonderful. One of one of those blessings of uh, of serving and going where the Lord wants you to be, I guess. That's 
That's great to hear. I uh, I know too. Along the way, you had some close interactions with the Jesuits, and I wondered if you might explain to the listeners briefly, you know, what who Jesuits are, but then also maybe share with us some of the things that you learned in your interactions with them. Well, the Jesuits, um, uh, which is a, a nickname for the Society of Jesus, uh, Jesuits are an order of the Catholic priesthood that was organized uh, back in the 16th century, uh, primarily uh, as a, uh, a special core of intellectuals that were to uh, um, resist the uh, encroachments of the Protestant Reformation uh, in Europe. And as time went on, the Jesuits... Uh, uh, became also kind of the uh, the shock troops, you might say, of the Catholic missionary system. Uh, as that missionary system expanded into Asia, it was often the case that that the Jesuits were sent first. Um, and uh, um, so there was a long tradition in the in the Jesuit uh, order of. Uh, of um, Developing the intellectual tools necessary to um, argue successfully for um, Christianity in general, but for the Catholic position on many doctrines in particular. <clears throat> so, uh, as time went on, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the um, popes, out of gratitude for what the Jesuits had accomplished. Um, uh, gave them the the special nomenclature of defenders of the faith, and the, that kind of became the Jesuit slogan. That the Jesuits were the first and foremost the defenders of the faith. Um, over the years, the Jesuits have been responsible for establishing many of the most uh, um, important universities around the world. Uh, all of the Loyola universities, for example, that people have heard of, are Jesuit universities. And uh, and it happened that uh, around the year 1900 or 1905, the, uh, the Jesuit order established a university in Japan for the Japanese. And uh, so it had been going uh, almost half a century by the time the... Uh, uh, the World War II ended, ended, and people like me began coming over to Japan. <clears throat> when that happened, uh, uh, the, the Jesuits um, realized that there were going to be a lot of Americans uh, coming to Japan who might want some uh, college training. So they uh, they opened up a an international division that ran parallel to the to the university system they had set up in Tokyo. And uh, this, I'm talking now about the Sophia University. So the Sophia University uh, had uh, its traditional ongoing mission to serve uh, the Japanese, but uh, in the 1940s it opened the International Division, where the same professors would teach the same classes, but in the English language. So that was how I was able to go and get a college education from the Jesuits. Well, this, since this was after my mission, 
Um, I already knew some things about religion and uh, had encountered uh, a lot of Catholics in the course of my own missionary experience. Um, and um, so I, uh, I was willing to pose questions to my Jesuit professors that not a lot of other students would have posed. And uh, it didn't take long for them to find out that I had been a Mormon missionary. They didn't meet many Mormons, especially um, uh, in uh, uh, in the uh, in, in Tokyo. So they were kind of intrigued at this kind of weird young Mormon guy that had showed up there to take classes and uh, had these uh, peculiar questions to ask. The long and short of that experience was that uh, uh, I became uh, very friendly with the Jesuits. Um, it was kind of a, a grudging friendship because on the one hand, I really appreciated the intellectual tools and armament that they had been able to create to defend and promulgate uh, Catholic philosophy. Um, and I wanted to learn how to do that for my own Latter-day Saint beliefs. But uh, then on the other hand, um, they appreciated about me the fact that I shared as a Latter-day Saint the Catholic uh, commitment to the idea that there could be only one true church. There could be a lot of good churches and a lot of good religions, but only one true church. And, you know, they thought it was kind of a, a, a kind of a, a brash for me to indicate as I did now and then, that uh, um, it was either their church or mine that was the one true church. <laughs> but they did appreciate the idea that I shared the, the notion of finding the one true religion with them. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a major conference that they organized for students from all over Japan uh, while I was there. And they uh, asked me actually to represent the international division of Sophie University in that conference and to participate in a variety of panels that uh, talked about the importance of understanding um, the fundamental truths of a religion and of finding uh, the absolute truth that underlay so many uh, other truths with a small t that uh, we encounter in the world, and I thought that was kind of interesting. They would they they asked for me to represent a Catholic university because they figured that that uh, at least I had the right idea and and would not uh, I mean about the right idea about fundamental truth, and I would not be kind of. Uh, um, put aside by the, the many other arguments that were going to be made about how religion and religious truths are actually relative. Um, so that whole issue of absolutism versus relativism in religion was a, uh, uh, an intellectual framework that I, ha that I really found strengthened by my association with the Jesuits. But if you read my book, you my, my memoir book in particular, I'm sure you're aware that uh, uh, later on in my own graduate work, I learned to modify that um, uh, notion of a simple dichotomy between relative and absolute uh, by uh, 
learning that um, and and or by coming to understand that that all truth and all reality fundamentally are social constructions. And so that kind of, uh, I think as I put it someplace, sort of relativizes the relati- relativizers um, because it's uh, uh, what I what I learned that was that that if I were going to continue to think of my religion as an absolutely true religion and the Mormon understanding of reality as the uh, only uh, ultimate ultimately true reality, I was going to have to do it as a matter of choice and faith and not as a matter of argument or proof. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. And I want to talk for a moment here. I want to I want to read to you something that you've written to kind of get into some of this nuance of of what you're just talking about there, which is sorting through the facts, the information, and then making an an active choice of faith. You write in one section. You say, "Yet as an individual trying to live my life successfully, I must choose among all the known socially constructed philosophies and frameworks." one which I will embrace above all others to inform my aspirations, my behavior, and my ultimate commitments. I have chosen the gospel of Christ, as I understand it, as the construction of reality on which I will depend for my destiny. Thus I am a believer because I have chose to believe, and not because I have been convinced either by powerful and sophisticated arguments or by special spiritual or otherworldly experiences. I will readily concede that the depth and power of my testimony wax and wane. When nourished by faith-promoting experiences or by my own special efforts, my testimony approaches certainty. At the other extreme, I fall back pretty much on the old approaches, I'm sorry, on the old uh, Pascalian wager. Always, though, even in its weakest moments, it calls on me to keep trying, to be better than I am, to return by faith to my incessant quest for understanding what this mortal existence means for me to do and to be. So that hits right in the head of what you just talked about. And I want to read the next, the next little paragraph here because then you start to get into how you begin to make this a choice for yourself. You say, I have been active in the church all my life. My cherished Ruth and I brought up eight children in the LDS faith, including five sons who served missions for the church in their youth. Like many others born in the faith, I began my adult life with a naive and simplistic understanding of the gospel, which I sometimes recall with a certain nostalgia. However, I gradually learned throughout my education and my career how to assimilate the new ideas I encountered, whether in religion or in academia, I, and in, I'm sorry, and in the process, how to adopt those ideas to my evolving philosophy of life and faith. Thus, unlike many others, I never experienced any great spiritual lows or highs. That is, no great crisis of faith, nor any specific epiphany that altered the course of my life. It's just been one long process of thinking and rethinking, a process still going on. One element in that process that has inoculated me to some extent against the disillusionment is the distinction that I've always made between the church and the gospel. And then you say, while I concur with the late Eugene England about the value of church life and teaching us how to live the gospel, I have found it helpful to keep the gospel and the church separate intellectually. Can you help us understand how do you do that? How do you how do you decide between what is doctrine, what is church culture, what is policy, what is, you know, how do you make those distinctions in such a way to give yourself the room to keep moving forward? Uh, well, I, I, uh, I don't know that, uh, that I have any, uh, any unusual, uh, um, uh, system for that. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I have a, a, a certain understanding 
uh, about how I th- how I think the the um, the restored gospel was restored. Uh, that is to say, how our religion got started. And uh, um, the more I have learned about the history of our religion, uh, the more apparent it is to me that uh, um, the human element in that religion has become increasingly important with the passage of time. Um, I, I feel, uh, or I guess I should say, my, my reading about the life and experience of Joseph Smith, for example, uh, convinces me that he had uh, a, a great many uh, close encounters with, with deity and uh, that uh, through him, uh, uh, our God and Father did in fact intervene in history to um, establish this religion, not the first or only and maybe not even the last time that that kind of divine intervention has occurred. But it did occur at the time of Joseph Smith. And then um, from that point on, Joseph Smith and his associates were um, taught, um, not usually, I guess, though, by visions and, uh, and divine or angelic appearances, but were taught by promptings of the Spirit. Uh, and I think we all know, as we study church history, that as time went on, uh, there were fewer and fewer of these miraculous encounters. Um, and Joseph Smith, and in fact, after Joseph Smith's time, they become uh, very rare. Um, all of that means to me that uh, um, that our Father in Heaven um, used the same, essentially the same system, in guiding the church that he that he uses in guiding you or me in our family life and how he does that is uh calls on us to seek uh, his guidance and then provides that guidance in accordance with how closely we learn to seek it well that puts an enormous amount of responsibility on the individual to find the divine will and to carry it out and so what I'm saying is that um, that uh, that approach to finding and carrying out the divine will, uh, namely the the, the less uh, spectacular, dramatic, and magical uh, kinds of of experiences, is what came to um, uh, characterize the way the church operated certainly from the time of Brigham Young on. And uh, so with the passage of time, the church has come to uh, has come to seem to me uh, more and more like uh, any other big uh, uh, bureaucracy as it's grown in size and diversity. Uh, and so I uh, I have come to realize that the success of the church as a whole or the success of any um, unit in the church or the success of any leader in the church, male or female, depends upon how successful uh, we are in the church and our leaders are in uh, seeking and obtaining the divine prompting that that uh, is so important. And um, 
in that respect, as I think I said somewhere else, my expectations are pretty modest. Um, I think if anybody has served uh, as I have in le- local leadership positions, uh, we have learned to be uh, to be very humble about our own abilities to seek and find that divine guidance and to be sure that the things we say and do and the decisions we make really do reflect divine guidance. Since uh, uh, that has been my own experience, I'm reluctant to be very hard on uh, other people in their leadership efforts because I know how they must struggle. And so given that fairly modest set of expectations about the church and its leaders, it's really hard for me to get upset when things go on in the church that that I think really shouldn't happen. And uh, and when whenever uh, uh, changes in the church that I think should occur seem to be very, very long in coming. Um, and I don't get mad about it. I don't get upset about it. Uh, I just say, well, you know, the church is pretty much at this stage like any other human institution, and we have to learn to live with the human element in the church. Um, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we, we have faith that if we keep trying, Eventually, we'll get it right, but in the process, we're going to get a lot of things wrong, and we just have to prepare to live with that. So all of that is is related to the church. Right. Yeah, here's my struggle with that. I I sit and I, I, I hear you, and for the most part, I agree with that, and I think that's the right way to approach it. My struggle is that as members, we're kind of given a different paradigm to see the church in. We're, we're told that we are led by prophets, and, and not only that, we go one step further and we compare those prophets to other prophets like Moses and Noah and Abraham, and we talk about how the prophets today, President Monson and President Hinckley before before him, and and you know the the fifteen before that, that they are the same as Joseph Smith was, and it's almost like we want members to have the expectation that the prophet today is exactly like Moses, and it's almost like the church wants us to draw the connection between all the miraculous miracles that Moses performs and that Noah performs and that others along that vein perform. And yet, in reality, the only approach that I find that really works is the one you're taking, which is to say, you know, yes, there's the divine, and yes, this church is authorized by God, and yes, it's his institution, but it's it's a lot more human, a lot more of natural experiences going on and reactions to those experiences than, than maybe the perception we're trying to to have most people hold on to. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. And I, I see the, the tension there. Naturally, I've felt it myself for the passage of time. Um, I make a couple of observations there. One, um, uh, anyone who does a, uh, a comparison, except of the most superficial kind, between modern LDS prophets and the prophets of biblical times, uh, will uh, uh, certainly not uh, expect perfection from uh, modern LDS prophets. And you, you read the whole story, you know, about 
uh, about Moses and Abraham and some of the earlier prophets, and you realize that uh, they had a lot of flaws. They made a lot of mistakes, uh, and they'd be the first to admit it. So there's no reason on the basis of comparison with those early prophets for us to expect modern prophets to be flawless. Um, and so that's one observation I would make. The other observation I would make is that um, we need to become much more thorough um, and, and penetrating as students of the history of, of the Latter-day Saints and, and of our church. When we do that, we, we are really, to use my, that phrase again, we're really kind of inoculating ourselves against the simplistic expectation that if we sustain a man as prophet, that he's not going to make any mistakes and that uh, everything he says is going to be gospel truth. And, uh, and if we are questioning it, why we're the ones at fault and all of that. Um, the, the history, my, my study of the history of the church convinces me that uh, some of our prophets have been much more successful than others at uh, a consistent um, reliance on divine guidance. And uh, some of them have made some really serious mistakes. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I don't hold that against them. But you can't really do a very thorough study of the history of the church and come away with any sense of the infallibility of our church leaders. Following the prophets, to me, means uh, considering very carefully always the counsel they give us and, um, and following that counsel to the extent that our own divine guidance tells us that it's applicable to us in our situation. Uh, ultimately, uh, I and my own feeble attempts at finding divine guidance have to be the ultimate um, process of arbitration uh, in deciding what I'm going to do or not do uh, with the guidance that I've gotten from from uh, the church leaders. Uh, so, um, uh, I, you know, when you look at, for example, when you look at uh, the the uh, history of the church, you realize that it's gone through that history. Of the church has gone through certain phases when the church leaders have felt a really strong sense of danger and have uh, become quite rigid about demanding that people get in line and uh, do what they say and not ask any questions. And other times uh, the leaders have uh, been far more relaxed about it and have urged us, you know, not to worry so much about this or that, but reach out and embrace good wherever we find it and, and, uh, and help uh, and become friends with people of other churches. You know, one of the things that made Brigham Young seem like a, uh, a Latin American dictator a lot of the time was that during his entire career, 30 years as president of the church, he really never had a period when the church was not under some kind of serious attack. Uh, and so for Brigham Young, to him, the salvation of the church depended on everybody pulling together and doing what they were told. So sometimes he got pretty tough about that. Um, and then, you know, later on in the, in the uh, first half of the 20th century, particularly, um, why there was a lot more of a willingness to um, 
reach out and partake of of the good things of the of the earth and of the country in which we live, and uh, to seek to to befriend all kinds of other peoples, not be too worried about the impact of uh, of the world upon the church, because mostly the world was pretty friendly. And then we get to the 1960s when all hell breaks loose and the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket and uh, 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 lots of sex and drugs are the way of the world and uh, uh, old old uh, moral uh, uh, strictures no longer seem to apply. And at that point, we find the church leaders going through kind of a crackdown period again, saying, hey, we're in perilous times. We've got to pull together here. We can't uh, afford too much criticism of church leaders. Uh, we can't afford to let uh, uh, we can't afford to let even scholars who seem to be faithful scholars um, uh, publish a lot of stuff that might not make the church look good. Uh, so we went through a period that I've labeled a period of retrenchment uh, that. Uh, characterized the church until, you know, about the time of uh, President Hinckley's administration, when since then we've kind of opened up again and and uh, uh, decided to become more expansive about how we treat our history and to open up all of Joseph Smith's papers to the whole world, let everybody see it. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, I'm this is a drastic oversimplification, but you understand my point, I hope, that we have to see in this, in understanding the human element in the church, we need to understand that church leaders often act in the way that we would expect other humans to act when the responsibilities that they have uh, are under some kind of stress or attack from the outside. And I understand that and appreciate it and accept it. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think that means at all that um, the church leaders uh, don't sometimes get it wrong. Right. It, the the thing I want to ask you about that, though, I mean, you do agree, though, that we, we as, a, as an institution, I'm not, I'm not talking about any specific leader, but as an institution that we we teach kind of to the majority, and if the majority hold a, a simple view that that President Monson talks to Jesus face to face on a regular basis and, and great and mighty miracles are wrought regularly in the church. Like, that's a fair thing to say, right? That the church kind of teaches to that level and is okay with members kind of holding that expectation as the majority of the, of the membership does. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that, that we do have that problem and, uh, and that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, an approach of that kind to understanding the church and the gospel works pretty well when uh, competing ideas are not readily available. Um, and we've been through a period now where uh, it was possible to circle the wagons and to try to put across that fairly um, uh, happy view of the, of the church and its history and, and of its uh, leadership. Um, but uh, I think those days have been destroyed forever by the rise of the Internet and uh, by all of the countervailing ideas that are now available that people can easily find that will undermine such a happy view 
of the the way the Lord works and the way the church leaders work. Right. So it's right. it, it's it's a real problem, and and we are uh, increasingly uh, recognizing, including some of our our apostles, uh, judging by their conference addresses, are increasingly recognizing that the uh, that uh, faithful church members are beginning to experience serious doubt um, about the uh, uh, the uh, traditional and kind of mythological explanations for the history of the church. Uh, right. I think we're entering a period where uh, we're going to uh, we're going to find a systematic effort to um, to change uh, that view and to accept a more um, uh, human understanding of church leaders and, and the way they operate. Yeah. You know, I, I think that once you recognize or learn or discover all available information, you have no choice but to change your paradigm. You have no choice but to let go of that, that simple view and to come into some type of, of framework that's more, much more nuanced as kind of what you're pointing to. And, and in fact, I wanted to, I want to read one more quote that you gave that I thought was beautiful in this article I, I read that you had written. It said, you said, um, I have sought to understand the transformation of the Latter-day Saints from an ephemeral new movement to an institutionalized and bureaucratic modern organization. Not everything involved in the rise and development of a religious movement can reasonably be attributed to deity, not even in the case of the Latter-day Saints. So in the panorama of LDS history, what can be attributed to the influence and revelation from God and what to human agency? How can we tell? If prophets are fallible and imperfect like other mortals, how can we know when their teachings might contain error? My research and study in LDS history have convinced me that prophets and other leaders do make mistakes, sometimes serious mistakes, which can affect the flow of church history. Yet, it is not my job to identify their mistakes, and I am more likely to avoid mistakes of my own if I follow their counsel. Now, I, I want to share with you, I struggle with that. I I certainly try to, to, in fact, the podcast has a subheading of leading with faith, because that's that's the effort I try to make in my my journey in the church, is to talk about serious issues, but but to lead with faith. But one of the things I struggle with is when I see things in the church that I just am frustrated by, and... And I hate to give examples because even to give an example then becomes becomes somewhat critical of whoever's the one who who shared that. But in the church, things happen. And I'll use this example because we now have the church saying the same thing. But with the race and priesthood uh, issue, you know, we talk about from 1852 on, Brigham Young uh, on down, church leaders are saying, hey, sorry, you know, those of uh, of a black heritage uh, were less valiant in the pre-existence. They were, they had the curse of Cain. And, and for most members who are struggling, they look at this and they say, you know, what stopped Heavenly Father from fixing it a lot sooner? And at the same time, if we're not able to, to question that type of thing or to not necessarily criticize individuals, but to criticize the policy or the doctrine, in a sense, it's, it asks us to just sit back and just allow others to be hurt by it. How do you, how do you work your way through these things without being critical? I mean, I, I feel like as I've read several of your papers and articles that you've written, you do a wonderful job of talking about the issues without really coming across as critical towards anybody. And yet, for some of us, it is so hard to just sit back and allow things to happen that, that can be hurtful towards others. And so we feel like there's a need to, 
to raise questions to to raise our hand and say, hey, I don't agree with this, just so that maybe somebody will pause and say, hey, maybe we should talk about this further. How do you how do you do that? Well, I um, I think uh, the beginning of wisdom in this is to uh, realize that uh, uh, the the develop, developments uh, changes of of a doctrinal of jo- changes in the in significant doctrines in the church always take time, um, and that's again uh, a a recognition of the way the process of revelation works in the church. Um, you know, if I'm correct that uh, divine guidance occurs only if and as uh, the church leaders seek that guidance, then if they don't ever ask why, then there, no change is ever going to occur. And uh, uh, so that means that uh, as long as a if we stay with the race issue as an example, uh, as long as that uh, racial restriction obtains, uh, you uh, as a member, uh, and, and I always felt that I as a member, uh, had l- limited uh, options with what I could do about it. One thing I could do about it would be that I would not, um, in my own personal behavior, um, uh, treat black people as though I believed that they had been cursed by uh, God for killing Cain. But beyond that, I also felt uh, entitled as a uh, as an informed Latter-day Saint and social scientist uh, to point out the consequences for the church, uh, particularly as well as for black people, the consequences of, of that uh, uh, racial policy. And, you know, that's all I ever did in my writing. I never said um, in any of my writing that the that this racial policy is wrong and the brethren have got to change it. I never said that. I may have believed it, <laughs> but I never said it because I always understood that that's not my call. What I did say was, as long as the church continues to teach this kind of thing, here's what's happening and here's what's going to continue to happen. And that's all I could do. I felt entitled to do that. And I will always feel entitled to point out what seemed to me uh, as the uh, likely consequences of a particular church policy or teaching. So uh, um, we, we have to take the long view. We have to, uh, if we're going to be members of the church and, and be you know, part of the of the body, uh, we have to be prepared to um, accept that long view and realize that uh, uh, the uh, policies of the church are always going to change relatively slowly and that uh, there's a limit to what we as individual members can do to make changes that we think should be made. I think a certain amount of humility is also necessary here uh, because uh, um, as as outrageous as a certain policy might look to us at a certain point in time, uh, it may not look so outrageous uh, either in retrospect or as time goes on um, a little bit later. Uh, so, um, uh, with a, with appropriate humility and 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 limiting oneself to what one is really authorized and entitled 
to do, uh, I think uh, one can survive in the church. Um, I never liked the, the race policy, at least as a young, from the time I was a young adult. But, uh, but I also knew that there were limitations to what I could do to change it. And so what's my option? I can, you know, kick it over and say, well, if the church is going to be like that, I'm leaving. I'm going to go and join a more racially liberal church. Well, I could do that, but what would that cost me? Right. And so I think that's the predicament we're in. But, you know, we're in the same predicament when it comes to the nation we live in. How many, you know, how many times does any one of us uh, feel like we have, we just can't stand uh, um, another uh, another year of a certain kind of political regime and and all of the stupid things that this or that president or administration is doing and uh, it's got to change. It's bad. It's wrong. It's awful. So what is your choice? Well, you do what you can as a voter or put yourself forward as a political leader, or else you go and live in another country. You know, that's right. That's your choice. And that's, I think, where we are. Same thing in family life. I think there's a lot of parallels between church life and family life. So you belong to a family. Well, you find out that uh, your father or let's put it a little farther off, your grandfather or your uncle is a child molester. And he molested a female relative for years and years and years. Well, now, um, what are you going to do about that? Um, are you going to uh, hang your head in shame and wish that you were a member of another family? You're going to kick it over and, and change your name and try to join another family? Uh, you're, are you going to try and make some change within the family? There's only so much of a change that you can make within the family. Uh, so we, we all belong to institutions that, in which things happen that we don't approve and that we can't do much about. So we do what we can, but ultimately we have to make a cost-benefit decision about whether it's better to stay in or get out. Yeah, and leaving comes with a loss as well because, like you say, I mean, there may be a, a hundred things that, that you love dearly that are close to your heart, and there may be a handful of things that you just just struggle to live with every day and yet yet to leave in spite of those you know to leave because of those things in spite of the the hundred good things just doesn't make a whole lot of sense and so i i hear where you're coming from and i agree with that approach it's just sometimes that approach is really hard and it's one that you seem to have navigated really really well i i want to finish up with two last questions and the first one has to do with your testimony on the website mormon scholars testify you leave a beautiful testimony on there and you you essentially go through some of your own experiences and then you list your testimony as far as the things you know and the things you believe in. And you make a very clear cut distinction about not wanting to say things in regards to testimony that you're not certain of. And I found that to be very mature, very um, a very informed, a very wise way to handle it. And I just wanted to, to maybe get a, a, a feel from you on how you came to a place where you're very comfortable saying, Hey, I don't, I don't know these five or six things. And yes, you know, lots of Latter-day Saints testify about these. I don't know those things, but, but here's some things I do have faith in or things I do believe in. And here's some things I do know. How have you gotten that comfortable within your testimony, especially publicly with others? Um, I, gee, I don't know. I, <laughs> um, I think a lot of what I've already said sort of points to to the process. Um, 
I, uh, you know, I, uh, I, 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 from something you, you read of mine a little earlier, uh, you'll recall I said that, uh, that being committed to, to the LDS construction of truth and reality, um, is something that I have decided to choose on faith, uh, that it hasn't been, it hasn't resulted, I haven't been able to reach that point either from some kind of incontrovertible proof that that I've uh, come up with or through some supernatural um, epiphany. Uh, I can't claim either of those uh, as uh, as special, powerful experiences. And so um, I think in that Mormon Scholars Testify uh, uh, article, I say something to the effect that uh, I've come to these positions through my own uh, meditation, prayer, and thought, and uh, and study, uh, and on the basis of those uh, experiences, I I believe in God in the way I said I do, and uh, and in the mission of of Jesus the Christ, and so on, but uh, not because of the uh, of the um, of a powerful experience of the kind that one hopes for from Moroni 10, 4, and 5. You know, that's, uh, that, that kind of experience is something that everybody would like to have. Um, and when I was younger, uh, I, um, uh, I, I sincerely thought, I believe, that, that I had had such an experience. But I later came to realize that well, it probably it probably wasn't uh, the, the epiphany that I thought it was, uh, and I just came to to realize with the passage of time that that my uh, that my growth in faith and understanding has come almost entirely from my own struggle uh, with uh, with studying and meditating, thinking, praying. Uh, and what happens when I pray uh, is sometimes uh, very impressive to me, other times not. But putting all those things together and kind of working on it for a lifetime, um, I feel pretty certain about those, what, four or five things that I mentioned. Uh, but uh, uh, I think I also say that uh, I, I don't, I don't claim there the certainty that I so often hear um, uh, 21-year-olds express uh, from the pulpit. Um, so uh, kind of that's where I am. And, and I appreciate that. And here's the reason I say that. I, I come from a ward that tends to, to everybody kind of stands up and says, I know. And I often worry about the person sitting in the back who, who is aware that he doesn't know. And he sees this almost necessity of certitude to be a faithful Latter-day Saint. And what I found beautiful about your testimony was kind of this allowance for for our understanding of the gospel, our testimonies of the divine, to vary from person to person and to allow room for there to be, yeah, there may be some things I know, there may be some things I have faith in, there may be some things I believe, and, and there may be some things I just hope that are, are the case. And I, I just, I appreciate, and I'm not trying to degrade others who say they know and, and trying to say they don't, 
I, I think that's an individual thing, and, and I'm sure that there are people out there who do know the gospel's true. But the intellectual honesty of your own testimony, I think, allows a lot of room for others who perhaps are struggling. They would come and hear your testimony and read that uh, on Mormon Scholars Testify and just realize there's a lot more room out there for Latter-day Saints to be different. I, I want to finish up. I want to talk just for a moment about your book, uh, Shifting Borders in a Tattered Passport, and I think it hits on very much a lot of the things that we're talking about today and the way in which the church has a lot more of a human, human, uh, involvement or human experience to it than, than sometimes we as Latter-day Saints think. Um, what, I mean, what got you to the point where you said, Hey, I've got to sit down and I've got to put this down on paper? Well, it was, it was sort of a fluke, actually. Um, I, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I reached a point in, in life where uh, I thought, well, I've had some interesting experiences. I should probably write them down uh, for uh, for my family. Um, and so I sat down and started writing. And uh, um, after I'd written about 75 pages, I realized that uh, um, I had actually produced something that would be equivalent to about three different chapters because there were that many different topics that I ended up writing about. But beyond that, it it also became apparent to me that what I was writing about was entirely um, kind of um, internal to my own experience uh, as a uh, as an academic. And uh, none of my children has become an academic. I mean, they're all successful, but not academics. Um, a couple of them, I think, have the talent that they could have been academics if they'd wanted to. But uh, as as I reflected on what I'd written, I realized that, hey, what I'm writing about here is uh, how my experiences, uh, my training and experiences as as an academic in the social sciences have affected the way I have dealt with my religious commitments. And uh, when I realized that, I realized that I was off in a in a territory that my children would probably not really relate to very much. Um, my children are all, you know, intelligent, uh, and they're all most of them are are active in the church. One of them's a bishop right now, and all that. <clears throat> but uh, and and they they tend to they tend to question a lot. Um, uh, where, where ordinary church policy and church life are concerned. Um, they, they don't sort of just, uh, lean over and do whatever the manual says without getting, uh, further explanation and understanding. Right. But, but at, at a, at a, um, at a deep intellectual level, they just don't ever go there. Um, on, on the whole, this whole business of, you know, whether truth and reality are socially constructed or not. See, that's not a question of what ever occurred to my children as, as bright as they are and they're well educated. But it's also a question that would never occur to most Latter-day Saints, as you know. Yep. And, and so, um, having realized that I'd gotten into a territory that wasn't going to be all that interesting to my own children, I decided, well, I better write something else for them some other time. But meanwhile, <laughs> let's keep going with what I've got. And so I kept going, and the the result after about a year of 
uh, writing away, uh, uh, produced that book. Wonderful. We are speaking today with uh, LDS scholar Armand Moss. Um, where can they get the book, uh, Brother Moss? I thought you'd never ask. Um, it's published by the University of Utah Press, um, and it's available uh, either in uh, hard copy or very cheaply in uh, uh, the in electronic form. Also in electronic form, you can get it through Kindle. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, uh, I hope you'll take a look at it and uh, and enjoy reading it. I'd be glad at any time to entertain uh, comments or questions from anybody that that takes the trouble to read it. That's great. I I know that reading your writings, I've just appreciated your writing style, and I've appreciated reading the experiences that you've had. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this to check out uh, your book, Shifting Borders and a Tattered Passport, and. I, uh, I will include a link to your book with this interview. Uh, it will send them off to a couple of places where they can purchase it. And I just want to say I appreciate so much you spending some of your time with me tonight and, and uh, just grateful for the opportunity to sit down and to talk to you. And just to be blunt, you are one of those uh, intellectual scholars out in Mormonism that, that I admire and appreciate. And uh, thank you for uh, taking your time. Well, I don't feel like I was terribly articulate, but I'm glad that it was helpful to you. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on tonight.